All right, welcome back to another edition of the Supporting Actress Smackdown at the Film Experience. And each month we look at a different Oscar vintage and we look at it through the Supporting Actress category just because that's under-discussed and it just gives, gives us an interesting way into movies. Um, this month we're doing 1946, uh, which turns out to be a very interesting, uh, very problematic Oscar year, but we'll get to that. Um, we'll be talking about uh, the thriller, The Spiral Staircase, um, the drama, The Razor's Edge, the Western Duel in the Sun, and the, I don't know what genre to call it, Saratoga Trunk <laughs> with Ingrid Bergman, but the nominee there is Flora Robeson, uh, but, we'll, but we'll get to all of that. Oh, and uh, the historical drama, Anna and the King of Siam, which of course later became the much more famous The King and I um, with songs, uh, but this is a straight uh, drama. So I'm very excited to introduce our guests. Uh, first of all, returning guests, we have uh, Peter Dushan. He's a playwright and a writer. Hi, Peter. Hello. How you doing, Nathaniel? I'm, I'm excited to be back. Um, I am, as you say, a writer. I work for theater, so I've had very little to report. <laughs> but now it's opening back up, so hopefully soon. Soon. Um, and then we have a critic, Guy Lodge, who I know you all know and love because he's been a guest multiple times. Well, I, I think some of them love me. That's maybe a, a broad statement. Um, yes, and yeah, really thrilled to be doing another SmackDown. And for those that don't know me, I kind of starts out also on the awards beat back with In Contention, RIP. And now I write for Variety and The Guardian um, and a bunch of other places. So here we are. Great. Uh, welcome back. And then I'm very excited to introduce new guests. Um, we have the actor, um, Tori Devon-Smith. Welcome, Tori. Hi, Nathaniel. Hello. I'm really happy to be here. And uh, tell us, uh, tell, tell people where they might know you from. Um, you might know me from the Netflix series called The Get Down, um, created by Boz Lerman and directed by him as well. And then I was on a series called Zoe Ever After, which was on BET, which was my first series regular role and one of the biggest roles I've ever gotten. And it was at the very beginning, which was really exciting. Um, and then I've been um, working pretty, pretty steadily since. Um, my latest role was Cherish the Day, Ava DuVernier on the OWN Network, which was really, really cool. Um, I got to play a heterosexual. It was great. And <laughs> um, um, Kurt, there are two films that are go that are coming out. One is going through the festival circuit. It's called Hollywood Fringe, which is um, starring Justin Kirk and a slew of great actors. Um, it's really really cool. Um, it's sort of it's sort of like a play within a movie within a play within a movie. Um, hopefully that'll be sort of out soon. And um, I'll be in another film called, this game's called Murder, starring Ron Perlman, who I had the honor of having scenes with. He's so tall and fun and he was so sweet to me. And then currently <laughs> I'm um, producing and starring in my own film called The Baldwin Archives, which I film on Thursday. And I'm quite excited about that. It's going to be a reenactment of an interview that James Baldwin gave from 1963, where he talks about the virtue of respect for your fellow human being. And um, I'll be playing James Baldwin. Very exciting. So, yeah. Looking forward to that. And finally, from uh, the beautiful website Statuesque, we have Alan Nguyen. Hi, Nathaniel. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Um, I, I saw Alan's site. Um, for all of you who haven't seen it, and you absolutely have to see his just 
beautiful to look at. And like the film experience, it's obsessed with um, old movies and old Oscar races. So 1946, uh, where do we even start? Um, <laughs> what a dump, right? Right. <laughs> I, when I invited people, I had the only movie of, uh, from this batch that I had seen previously. Um, this is a rare year where I had really not seen anything except for I had seen The Spiral Staircase. Um, so I had no idea what was in store. Um, and it was many surprises, not all of them good. <laughs> um, but let's do them in chronological order of the era they're set in. Why not? Um, so sure. we'll start with Anna and the King of Siam. Now, of course, uh, this is a famous story about an English school teacher um, who, um, who was a tutor to uh, the children of the King of Siam, which is modern day Thailand. Um, and most famously, that story was told in The King and I, the musical. But of course, Jodie Foster, I don't know if you all remember this, made a version of it as well in the 90s. Yeah. Um, I think we might be the only people who remember that. Interesting factoid, every version of the story, other than uh, the one animated version of it, um, has been nominated for Best Art Direction at the Oscars. I, my, my issue with Anna and the King of Siam is not its art direction, so, so fair enough. <laughs> It's interesting. I was asking myself because Nathaniel, he sent me a message asking me to the panel and he was just like, you know, these films are going to be um, offensive and I just want to warn you. And I thought, oh, it's fine because I'm, I'm someone who's, you know, I'm an actor of color. I'm black, very black. And I thought I can separate, you know, um, wherever this film lived in its era from the merit of it. What is it about? That's what's sort of most important. And can the subject matter, the themes of the story, overwhelm what might be offensive? Yeah. Um, but get, and I started with Saratoga Trunk. Then I did Anna. And I was very, very surprised. In terms of Gail, what I was missing from her performance was expressing to the audience what is the basic need of the character. And the basic need of the character was about her hoping or, or wanting her son to be as happy as possible, which really mirrored Anna's, Anna's want for her son. You know, she should have been sort of, um, she should have been the uh, sort of Anna's example within that kingdom, within that, that royal family. And, and she wasn't, what was missing from her performance was obviously like authenticity. And that's going to be difficult because you are not of Asian descent. You are a white actor playing an ethnicity. And, that was obviously the issue because she was trying to do this impression of this ethnic person. So it was this really agonizing tone. The accent was weird. It was almost as if she was in a trance. So I didn't get any color from her. You know, I want to see some, some pain. I want to see you be this woman, but you were playing an ethnicity. So therefore you stifled your entire performance. And the thing that I noticed is I didn't miss her when she was gone. And I should have, I should have, because that was Anna's only female connection in that family. So that's what I, I really sort of, um, I was disappointed in her performance. I will say about this um, that I, at least she was not, it's all, you have to do all these caveats to talk about these performances, but at least she was not um, playing ethnicity in the same way that say Rex Harrison was mm. 
as the King of Siam, who uh, I didn't even understand what he was trying to play. It was like, for all he knew, um, people from Thailand were like space aliens or something. It was such a strange performance. Um, So I just, he was so distracting to me. And also it was... um, Lee J. Cobb in full beat? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Could not be any further away from Asian whatsoever. (laughs) I kept thinking about him um, on the waterfront. And and then it's just, just so many general questions. I'm like, wait, you're playing a prime minister, but your first two scenes are just fully topless. I'm so confused. <laughs> <laughs> well, I not turned on even, you know. Um, yeah, I, I, well, with with Gail Sondergaard, I, I went in with very low expectations of the performance, knowing, you know, knowing that it would be uh, an actress of Danish origin, as suggested by her her last name, uh, playing. Um, you know, doing yellow face. Uh, and so I was sort of going in like right at the bottom and, and looking for kind of redeeming features, basically. And I, I have to say, I did sense some kind of repressed emotional uh, kind of energy going on inside beneath, you know, beneath all the, all the kind of like clearly panicked work that she is doing just to just to maintain the sort of exterior appearance that she you know that she shouldn't be doing um so you know compared to you know flora robson in in saratoga trump which we'll get to later i i thought she was thinking about the interior of the character a bit more but it was just it's such a disconnect particularly in a film that is in this very flat-footed, misguided way, kind of attempting to to deal with, you know, Western presumptions and and kind of colonial attitudes towards, you know, towards Eastern culture, and yet doing that by casting Western actors in Eastern roles. It's it's such a disconnect that, you know, uh, she is not great, but the there's so much around her that's that's misguided. It's it's just that her performance wasn't even the, you know, what, as, as Nathaniel said, when you have Rex Harrison doing that, she almost just kind of blends into the background of, of this whole insane um, world. What I thought was very strange was like the shots of the, of all of the wives, like the harem (laughs) for what it's, what it's worth is that there were, as far as I could tell, I mean, it was in black and white and, you know, group shots, but as far as I can tell, there were women of multiple ethnicities, but just not, and it, it, it just seems so strange. It's like to, and I don't even think it was specific Hollywood at the time. Like there, there were actors being cast correctly in the forties and in the thirties. So I don't understand what this one movie, I mean, like there are other movies of course, but that do this, but it just like, it's almost like any race other than white is interchangeable to the casting, yeah. mm. which is very strange. <laughs> so well, they I'm, do always say things like, you know, like why Louise Rain did the good earth instead of somebody like Anna Mae Wong. You know, you read that because there wasn't an Asian American movie star on the level of Anna Mae Wong, they couldn't, they claim that they couldn't put her in the movie because it would have created an interracial relationship for the audience. So, I mean, I could follow that 
line of ridiculous logic and say, okay, Linda Darnell and Gail Sundergaard, they're married to the person playing the king. The king's being played by a white guy. I can like sort of backtrack and justify it in a kind of, based on their own gross justifications. But neither of the, I mean, Linda Darnell is, but Gail Sundergaard is not presented in any kind of sexualized way in any romantic scenes. We just understand her to be married to the king. Yeah. For what it's worth. And it was it was so it was so odd to have to have these Western actors play these roles. I mean, there, there was an interesting um, part where the little girl, the little daughter, she starts speaking, and I'm just like, "Is this Shirley Temple? Did they get an Italian little girl?" <laughs> it was so it was so obnoxious. Irene Dunn in that film is fantastic. I was really taken with the story. I think it's really it's it's about people progressing together. And there's a really wonderful moment um, with Gail's. She has a wonderful monologue. It's a, it's, a, it's a stupendous monologue where she talks about the picture. She's telling the story to Anna. There's a, that you miss the opportunity to really express that character's sort of mirroring your experience. And that should have been hurtful because now this woman disowned Anna. It should have been a moment that really captured, captured the pain and it didn't. So I'm, I'm almost like less concerned with um like, how obnoxious it was racially, but more so like you missed the opportunity to tell the goddamn story because it's beautiful and it's timeless. That's why it's been remade for so, for decades now. And that scene to me was one of the sharpest scenes. Like I understand that it registered as disappointing to you, but for me, it was like one of the only scenes that really went anywhere emotionally other than like the surface level. Um, Alan, what did you think? Um, so I must be crazy and I can't believe you all feel, feel so, um, fiercely against my Thai sister, Gail Sondergaard, but um, (laughs) she, she, I, I, I liked her more than I was expecting to. I think I might've liked her more than you all do. Um, and I'm struggling to come up with a reason why, because it's not a great performance. Um, but maybe it's just because everybody else, all the other white actors who are playing Asians um, are more grating or are more jarring. Um, you know, I think, I think yeah. Rex Harrison, he, like his very first, the first time we see him, he, he kind of like, he just like points and then he's like, he, he like says, who, who? And he, and I put down in my notes, I was like, he sounds like a monkey or something. Like, like he, you know, everybody else is kind of, worse than her so I guess I guess I I, I, so I have no choice but to kind of like her the most um you know like yeah yeah, Lee Lee J Cobb did nothing for me Linda Darnell not the least bit convincing either um so I mean but I I guess at bare minimum I thought that um Gail was very potently warm at the end of the day it's still it's still a crazy performance in a crazy film and and her best scene is the scene where she just walks us through her 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 wallpaper her tree wallpaper um which you know that's 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 insane uh that's your oscar scene yeah i was thinking that the oscar scene that you mentioned i i was thinking that too oh this is the oscar clip and then i remembered oscar clips had not been invented yet (laughs) because there wasn't a televised ceremony 
and there was no YouTube <laughs> and people only saw like these performances in sort of full. And I, I agree that I do think, I think she was the, that was the performance and the character that I felt kind of closest to throughout the whole thing. I'm interested that Tori liked Irene Dunn so much because I was having a lot of problems with her, even though the one person whose casting is not problematic at all. I just think the performance is, she felt to me really stiff and mannered and out of it for, for an actor who I think is often so kind of lively and expressive and, and fun. And I just wasn't connecting with her. But I, I, I think I liked Irene Dunn because I think, as you said, Guy, um, she wasn't problematic. So there's something that I, that I can connect to and take, and take off my 2021 lens. And I think what she goes through, there's a transition. You know, she does start off quite stiff. If anything, I think she's almost, um, she's almost like a bad mother. But then as the film progresses, and she's this teacher teaching everyone how to sort of be better, and in the process, learning how to be better herself. And also, too, what she stands for. I mean, she's a, she's a great feminist. So for her to stand in, you know, to be, stand in her conviction. Um, to say you're going to respect me, all of that just resonated with me so much. And 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 in the end, I actually really enjoyed the movie. This one was the one that actually sort of made me tear up, probably because I'm sensitive and I'm in the house and I'm sad already. <laughs> but it- Let's go to Saratoga Trunk, um, which I, I'm shocked that there was a movie crazier than Duel in the Sun in this lineup. I think, <laughs> I think maybe. So true. I think, uh, you know, these are the two movies we'll be discussing now, Saratoga, Trunk, and Duel in the Sun, which are two of the craziest movies from the 40s I've ever seen. Mm. Like, almost scene by scene. They are completely wild. And uh, so I, I, w- I was never bored, I will say that. But at least with Saratoga, Trunk was, like, offensive on a level that I've rarely experienced, even with older films. Like, every single character. There was something... Something in every single scene that was offensive. They're like, oh, we haven't been ableist yet. Check that box. You know, <laughs> every yeah, a full house. It's incredible. Um, yeah, there's a scene early on where Ingrid Bergman, who I think is atrociously miscast in this movie, um, because she's playing sort of this, you know, fiery, impulsive character that seems a lot more like a. I was trying to think of an actress in the '40s who would have been up for this and I kept I think it's too generic to say Vivian Leigh because she played you know these entitled southern bells but like Ingrid Bergman is just all wrong for the part Um, but there's this moment where she wants to try a jambalaya at some fair (laughs) and then she ends up eating it off a plate that is resting on the head of her dwarf servant yeah and it's all and I'm not even sure was it played for comedy it was so hard to tell in this movie because Every single time that you saw the um, dwarf character, this jaunty comic music came on. Yeah, I feel he was often being used for physical comedy, and it was because there was no other point to that character at all. Um, yeah, so that was that was a big yikes from me. Uh, but you know, then then we haven't even got into Flora Robson yet, <laughs> and I, I don't know where to start with that. Yeah, well, I mean. The, the, uh, obviously, we have to, you know, say that it's a blackface performance. But I think the thing that I found most shocking about that is that the filmmakers had, not, like, they would place her right next to actual black mm-hmm. actors in scenes. 
which you know there are actual black actors who like populate the frame in so yeah. many of the early scenes, yeah. particularly. And so you're, only, I mean, yeah, you're so you're only calling attention to you know how out of place she is. And for me, she she seemed even as an actor like completely uncomfortable in the part. Yeah, and blackface wasn't the go-to choice by 1946 in Hollywood. I mean, I think I read that you know Ethel Waters was in the running for the role and. They considered Lena Horne as well. And I just, what what possessed them to to go with Dame Flora Robson, who's you know, as, as British as it gets, and I think struggles to struggles to hide us in this performance. It's I mean, it makes Gail Sondergaard's casting look practically logical by comparison. It's it's <laughs> demented. Um, and the makeup is beyond offensive I mean they've made her look like a cartoon I mean they've given her this this unibrow that makes her look like Sam Eagle and you know she can't she her, her face can't really do anything beneath it I mean she looks like uh, she she looks alien it's like it's incredible and also but she doesn't you know to be fair to her she also doesn't isn't given really anything to do that character yeah. like what is that character she she like mutters and complains in the background. Um, her uh, the only arc I could see, the only thing I could see that there was something to play was her sort of changing um, regard for Ger the Gary Cooper character. Because at first mm -hmm. she really resents him and mistrusts him, and then she ends up ends up liking him. But that's not a big character arc to play. <laughs> No, in fact, I kind of felt watching it that had an actually authentically Black actor play the role, we might in retrospect in 2021 be having a conversation about like, oh, how unfortunate that this was like the limited role that this yeah. actor was off offered and the opportunities available to this person. And I, so I don't understand why this actor, why Flora Robson would want to take the role in the first place. I mean, I know people didn't have the same agency they do now, but it just seems totally wild to me to to want to insert yourself into the a role that gets almost no access given. Well, I think, I, well, for one, the degradation of blackness in this film was really sort of obnoxious to me. I thought, oh my gosh. And you know what was interesting was, you know, later in the film, you actually see the beautiful face of a black actress come to the door and listen in. And she says, I think they're dead. It was so, I, I have to say, it was so refreshing to see a black woman's because we've been this creature with, with it was Ford's makeup that really just was sort of insane. But, you know, to, to Peter's point, why would she take it? I sort of think that way with, um, um, uh, what's the actress, Zoe Saldana, when she took, when she took Nina Simone, which is essentially sort of a modern blackface performance as well, because the opportunity is there. It's an opportunity to do something outside of yourself. And so Flora taking on this performance was probably really intrigued with, with doing a transformation, something she's never done before. So I can understand any actor taking any role, you know, because it's just interesting to take. And because there was sort of, sort of an allowance, you know, sort of back then. Um, but again, she has, it's another stifled performance. She's doing a really sort of bad impression of, 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 blackness but I was you know I can't help to I couldn't help but be sort of impressed because really this woman who's British and you know she's you know her heritage is Scottish she's just this British woman doing this doing this Creole accent I mean she's going for it 
I'm not going to sit up here and say that I wasn't sort of impressed by that. And you know what was really interesting? There's a line that she says to Gary Cooper when Gary Cooper comes in and basically harasses her. And he says, Mammy, you don't like me. And she says, don't call me that. My name is Angelique. That's from the slave days. I don't like that. You know, to me, that says, well, then you all knew. You all knew how you were degrading Black women Mm -hmm. and how it felt just by admission of that line. And Black people always knew. So it would have been so amazing to have Ethel in that role. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Maybe Ethel Waters didn't want the role because there was not enough to it. Who can say? Uh, I I think what's interesting is, I mean, just the mechanics of how this nomination must have happened, because as Nathaniel said, there's, there's very little to play in that role. There's no, we were talking earlier about Oscar clip moments from, you know, from the era before there were Oscar clips. There's, there isn't one. Um, The, the only kind of notable thing about the performance is the inappropriateness of the casting. And, and so, and given that the, the film itself had no other nominations, it wasn't otherwise a player. I can only assume that, that the nomination happened because they thought it was a kind of a novelty achievement, which is, you know, which is grotesque, but that must be it, surely. What would, would, would you agree? Or? I would. I mean, I think it's, it's obvious they're obviously looking at it as like a transformation and I don't want to compare the performances because of course it's apples and oranges but it, it to me I think it's along the same mental lines even though it's crazy as as saying oh Charlize Theron I really believe that she had modeled skin and that she was like this low-class woman and monster and like giving the actor credit for like looking different because the makeup is so different so obviously Charlize is a brilliant actor so it's like a bad comparison but I think but I think at least some people when they vote are looking for transformations it's the same way that we see with like biopic roles always being so popular like put some fake teeth in Rami Malek and suddenly he's Freddie Mercury and deserves the Oscar (laughs) I would agree with to Tori's point about um Flora's mammy line it immediately it made me think of Hattie McDaniel's performance or not not that she reminded me of Hattie McDaniel's performance but my mind just goes there um in 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 that scenario I start comparing you know like Hattie gives you something you know she's charming she's she's touching she's funny um whereas Flora I'm just kind of like girl you're giving me nothing you know like, <laughs> what, what what are you you know what what exactly are you doing what what what's the point why are you here you know there there to, and to guy's point there there is no noteworthy moment that you you see and you're like oh this is this is this is good or you know this is a standout moment and um gail sondergaard you know she 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 gives you something you know she she gives you some semblance of warmth um and so, yeah, it's just, it, it's, it's strange. It just kind of feels like Flora's there. She takes up space. You know, there's, there's a moment that I put down in my notes where, you know, she kind of retorts, she gives a retort to Ingrid Bergman where she just says, you're full of the devil, which is, which to me, I think is a funny line. Um, but the way she delivers it, the way she, she says it, it's just kind of, it's neutral. It's not, it's not funny. It's, it's, you know, it's just kind of, 
plane, you know, and, and that's just kind of, that summarizes my whole sentiment towards the performance. It's just, I just don't understand, like, you know, why, <laughs> why, why are you here? Yeah. I mean, I, like one of the things that shocked me about this is if you're going to, if you're going to pinpoint one person for this movie, like, shouldn't it have been Florence Bates as, right. Yeah. As that woman who like suddenly is like blackmailing <laughs> Uh, well, she walks on the screen and the camera actually lingers on her face. She gets like five lines in a row where you sit with her and she's given a point of view in that yeah. one scene in the room that Flora Robson is not even given through the entire rest of the film. She has more screen time, I think, Flora Robson than other women in this category. And I think she makes much less of an impression. Yeah. And it's not as if Flora Robson was even some kind of perennial nominee that they would nominate for anything. You know, if she'd been like Thelma Ritter or something, I'd... I could sort of understand how this happened, but this was her one nomination and, and what a one, what a single nomination to have. But I, I do have to say, you know, it, it, it can be up to the actor possibly like, you know, to give this character more color, to make it complicated, to give it a different perspective. To me, um, Angelique played by Flora, you know, she has this dedicated lineage to the family. She's also very dedicated to Ingrid Bergman's character. There's a lot there that she could deal with. It's complicated. You're, you're upset, but you're also trying to protect her. You could, and, and what I didn't see was any fragility in her performance. That's what was missing. But also too, like you were saying, Nathaniel, what exactly is this movie? Because in the beginning, you know, the three of our, you know, the three of our characters, this weird trio is sort of on this boat, their backs to us, you know, it's sort of a noir you know, sort of feeling to it. And then all of a sudden it turns into this like ruckus. It's almost like, it almost reminded me of like a black, like a blockbuster comedy. I don't know why, but I was just like, this is really odd. Why is this now like an odd comedy? And then fucking like um, Gary Cooper's hat, you know, that first scene is really great. I was just like, oh, he's hotter than he was in High Noon. But that huge hat, <laughs> that enormous hat, I was like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know what the film was. I was yeah, like, it, what is this movie? Yeah, it, it also has two different motors, too. I mean, I, I will admit, I think I have committed the grievous sin of enjoying the first half of Saratoga Trunk. But yeah. I, I really enjoy the revenge fantasy of it. I like the story seems really clear. It's a strong motor. I, I, there's a lot of other stuff happening that doesn't make sense to me. But the core of it does. And then she kind of gets what she wants two thirds of the way through and they develop an entire other motor to take us through the rest yeah. of the movie, and it, it just doesn't drive. Yeah, it's like also, yeah, it's like becomes like a political drama, and yeah. then a, and then a sort of an action movie, and then it's a melodrama, and then a comedy. I mean, it was all over the place. This was what I researched. It was the most popular film from Warner Brothers of the year, so maybe that was obviously an influence in how it got attention at the Academy. Um, that's what I was sort of thinking. And I have to say, when you were saying, Nathaniel, you were thinking of actors, I was thinking of, of Betty Davis. And I think the screenwriter was a, was a screenwriter of other Betty Davis films. So to me, this felt like a very Betty Davis vehicle. Mm, you know I what I mean? This sort of, you know what I mean? I was just like, I want to see Betty Davis in this for some reason. Um, but I have to say, for um, the little person in the film, you know, he was basically used as a pet you know, like you talked about how he, you know, and the way that they fed him was so incredibly offensive, like a dog. But he did have a moment of redemption when he told Gary Cooper's character, I'm a man. And I was so happy that he got to say that 
I was just like, thank God, because he was. He was just, you know, to me, he was a he was somewhat of a three-dimensional camera. Well, two-dimensional, really. But there was something, he was still interesting to me. He was someone that did stand out. If they didn't treat him as a pet, I would have liked him more. Yeah. That's what's interesting about these movies, and it's the same with Anna and the King of Siam, is they, they throw in the scripts, kind of throw in these moments of kind of slightly liberal-minded awareness of kind of prejudice. And then the film's, are still completely complicit in that. And uh, I think it's such a fascinating snapshot of where Hollywood was at that time and that there were kind of very slow, kind of gradual signs of some kind of dawning, but, but the, you know, the, the, the general, you know, general thrust of the film just, just wasn't there and wasn't playing along. Also yeah, too, was she clinically bipolar? She would have these fits and then she oh, would yeah. sleep for out. days. So that was an odd thing that we never really concentrated on. I was like, what is her ailment? Can we get like some sort of dream sequence? Like, where is she going? Why is she being affected this way? Well, yeah, but that, you know, the vague illness, the mystery illness is sort of all over a lot of these movies, as as is the um, sort of mental illness vagueness. Um, and it, like a lot of it makes me think of like we're in the mid 40s, right? And it's... um and it's like directly post-war, these movies. And it's interesting to me that the best picture winner that year, The Best Years of Our Lives, which is a great movie, um, is super contemporary. It's like about men returning from the war. And in, you know, the war ended in 45 and here we are. So they were obviously making the movie just as people were actually returning for war. And, and you know, psychology was like exploding at this time period, like people's interest in it, and um, because the, because of all the post-war stuff. So it's like when when I agree with you, I think Tori, I think there was something bipolar going on, but they didn't have names for a lot of these things yet, or they mm. weren't, or they weren't widely, you know, it wasn't part of the vernacular. But there was a lot of that going on in these movies. So like, what exactly is happening to this person? <laughs> you know. And I think for the most part, you kind of just have to go with it. But then sometimes it just feels like a genre convention too, right? Like Duel in the Sun, the other insane movie. Like, I'm sure you could do a psychological analysis of Pearl, the leading character who's played by um, uh, Jennifer Jones, um, who is half uh, Native American and half white. Um, But also she's, you know, mentally... She has some issues going on, but the movie doesn't really know how to, and it, and the movie seems to love that because the, the movie is so crazy and it's, it's technicolor in its soul and not just in its look. I mean, it's, it's wild, that movie. And everybody is sort of off their rockers. I, <laughs> I mean, it starts with like a sympathetic man being like a murder, murderer, killing his wife just because she's cheating on him. And we're sp- and it, and it's very sympathetically portrayed. Like, oh, of course he killed his wife. Like, it's just like right from the very first scene. And then in the very next scene, his daughter is kind of kneeling at his feet, like crying because he's about to die. And it's like she doesn't seem mad that he murdered her mom at all. Right. <laughs> right. You know, and then then it just gets crazier from there. Um, yeah. yeah Julian, the son, I will say for me personally, did not work except as like an ode to the sexual charisma of Gregory Peck. That really landed on me, 
but a lot of the rest of it I struggled with. I just was like, it is the rapiest movie I think I've maybe ever seen, with the exception of Repulsion, probably. But like, <laughs> it, it just felt like it was the movie where it's not like no means yes. It was like no means oh yes. Like it just <laughs> was too much for me. Yeah, I love School in the Sun. Oh my goodness, I don't care. I don't even care. <laughs> I, I don't care. I, I, I love it precisely because it's batshit insane. But I'm also guilty of um, loving movies that tend to be um, just high camp and messy. You know, like like I love, I really love Betty Davis and the star. Um, so it's just, oh, okay. yeah. And, and there's just something chaotic about it. Just the sheer audacity of it all that I, I appreciate, I guess, even though it's, terribly wrong in all sorts of ways learning the history about this like i did like david o selznick was basically on drugs and he went crazy with this motherfucker i was like oh all these directors and you wrote the script and you were trying to mirror gone with the all of that but the thing that i was actually really impressed with duel in the sun was cinematically i mean the shots are stunning the color is beautiful the cinematography is amazing i thought it was so impressive and then that one scene um, um, where Gregory Peck and the horse. I was trying to research, did he actually do this? Was this like, was this a stunt guy? Because it looked like it was him. The thing about Pearl and Nathaniel where you talked about, you know, there's an ailment or something's wrong with her. I don't think anything's wrong with her. I think, I think everyone's assaulting her. Everyone's assaulting her. So that makes you crazy. When I think about women from <laughs> really any era, um, it's just like every man is trying to rape you. Every single man is trying to rape you. And they were. They were. It was so it, it was sort of insane. And then to sort of to get to Lillian Gish, um, who I found to be fine. If anything, I felt like there was nothing to her character. There was absolutely nothing there. She was just sort of a docile, sweet woman, and that was it. Yeah, I mean, I have really longed for more of a point of view from Lillian Gish on this part, because in a way, like she she has lived in that family. Like she knows who her husband is and she knows her, that her sons are always at war and she suspects they're going to be after this girl she's invited to live with them. And yet none of this registers as like warning signs to her, even though everything about the character tells you she already un- understands this about all the men in the family. And so I just wanted a point of view. Like, why are you so like, yes, come to live with, this hotbed of insanity where every man will be after you. Oh, except for the dad who's going to just hate you and, you know, racially abuse you. I'm, I'm with Alan in that I, I've always loved Jewel in the Sun. I first saw it when I was little, when the weird sexual politics of it all didn't quite register on me, but I was just sort of taken up in, in, in the beauty of it. And one of the reasons I wanted to do this Smackdown in particular was because I wanted to talk about the insanity of this movie with people. Um, but yeah, I, I think I think what you just said about yeah, why yeah, why she draws Jennifer Jones into this highly kind of hostile and dangerous household is is so interesting. And it's one of the things that interests me about her character is that she she sort of seems to constantly be talking herself into trying to like one of her sons who she clearly detests I mean because she initially says um I think the first time she addresses Gregory Peck's character what's his name uh Luton yes because yeah. yeah. it's also the name of the shittiest airport in the UK um 
I should have remembered that. Um, yeah, but she sort of says, oh, you'll like him. And I'm like, why are you trying to kind of talk into this? Because you just spend the rest of the films apparently kind of regretting that you ever gave birth to him. And so that, yeah, the, the, the Freudian kind of psychosexual dynamics of that family are fascinating. And yet they're almost kind of incidental to this kind of hot-blooded melodrama that's, that's going, kind of spinning in so many directions. And it is insane and I really do love it. But I really do like that Lillian Gish, to kind of talk about her performance, is as a kind of silent movie actress, she often seems to be giving kind of expressive work that's not written into the script. And that's kind of, given that the character itself is so underwritten, that's what I was looking for kind of in her face a lot of the time. She's so often just, she's in the background of a scene, but she'll kind of respond to something somebody says by kind of giving this a little bit of side eye or like her, she'll kind of purse her lips in a certain way. And kind of when you start paying attention to that and reading the performance that way, there's, there's a whole lot more there than, than I think the script is giving her. I could not agree more. I, I, I personally, she, hers was my favorite performance in the category. And precisely for this reason, I felt like it was like the opposite of Flora Robson and Saratoga Trunk, where they're both in the frame often, but I thought that Lillian Gish figured out incredible ways to make herself matter in the scenes. Like I was really in, I completely sat there watching it thinking, this is a woman who understands the camera. She just gets it in a way that even my second favorite performance that we'll get there, Ethel Barrymore, I don't think that she understands the camera quite as well. Lillian Gish, it felt like her physicality, like every move she made felt like a very clear, strong choice. And I love that. I mean, I totally agree that the character is confusing and why does she do the things she does? But I was really blown away by this warmth and just the expressiveness in this woman's face. I, I truly was surprised she didn't win the Oscar, if only because she's a legend already at the time. And it was the one chance to reward this, you know, icon of silent cinema. Well, I wonder, I didn't do research on how the movie was received, but I wonder if it wasn't very polarizing at the time because it's so crazy. Um, because even within the context of 1946, it's just crazy from start to finish. Um, you know, I hadn't seen it before and I also kind of loved it, but in a um, sort of, I shouldn't be loving this way <laughs> just because it was so audacious with its choices, even though a lot of it, <laughs> a lot of the choices are offensive, but it was just, it was so out there. Like when I, I had heard of the movie, but when, like, I didn't, you know, I don't want to spoil it for people who haven't watched it. You should watch it because it's just, you know, a, a historical document. I mean, it's not boring. <laughs> um, and, but the duel in the sun, I hadn't, I would never in a million years have predicted who the duel was between or, or <laughs> how, or how insane the final duel is. How it resolves. It's the best part of the movie, in my opinion. I yeah. love that. It's crazy. That ending is wild. I'm just like, what is going on? Is this Heffa dragging herself? I have to say, in terms of Lillian Gish, because I agree with both Peter and Guy, but there was one moment that I felt she underperformed. And it's a moment where she actually stands up to her husband and she's just sitting in the rocking chair. And it's 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 a it's a great little speech for her to say, no, you've been abusive for so long. No. And she didn't do anything with it. And to the fact that, you know, of course, I'm 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 now um, trying to um, I'm looking at actors from that period and seeing like, where's your level 
of, of honesty here. And I'm like, oh, well, then there were other actors who were doing really, really great work. So Lillian, you had a chance to really show us some depth of, uh, depth of emotion here. And you didn't. This is a really great uh, moment for this particular character standing up for herself in that era. And you didn't give it something. Um, I will say her ending in the film, I really loved. When, I, when, when you talk about her being obviously from the silent era, you know, she's the, she's the first actress of American cinema. She's iconic. Um, that moment was really beautiful, that sequence of her coming from the bed and all the way down, even though I felt Lionel Barrymore in that scene was really amazing, well, you know. But that's the thing I think that is incredible about the characterization is that, like, I didn't mind that she didn't fully stand up to him in that moment because it felt consistent with where the, the character ended up. I have never seen a sure. scene where the woman in the bed has to get out of the bed and crawl to the person who's supposed to be attending to her, who gets the foreground of the camera. Yeah. And when she dies, she just falls out of frame. I mean, like, there's, it was so clear that this wife she matters she just she has no agency in this relationship she her own death didn't even he didn't notice she died he was so wrapped up in his own emotional experience yeah. like it, it that it felt like she understood that about the character and i felt you know maybe there could have been more nuance in it but that that felt crystal clear to me throughout yeah i mean it's interesting Tori, that you bring up you know that scene about her standing up to him because i also felt she underplayed that and I kind of liked that choice, contrary to you, but at the same time, be, maybe because of how like quiet and reserved she was as a character, but at the same time, I wanted her to overplay at least one element yeah. because, or maybe overplay something with her, you know, how she played um, to uh, Gregory Peck, who she sort of, you know, what does she feel about him other than, you know, wishing he weren't evil? <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, because like otherwise, like every every other actor is chewing every piece of available furniture, and so she stands out in by not doing that. But at the same time, like I wanted her to do her to at least nibble on at least maybe a lamp or something, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I I had a hard time um connecting with Lillian Gish, and I guess I'm just easily distracted you know and everybody else is on a completely different wavelength Lionel Barrymore is screaming every single time he's on screen and Gregory Peck is rapey and Jennifer Jones is like smizing so damn hard it looks like she's just waking up from deep slumber uh, you, you know so it's just like everybody else is like grabbing your attention or competing to grab your attention and I felt like Lillian just kind of fell into fell into the background and it was just it, it was hard for me to you know just care I guess and uh, yeah and just, I, I felt she kind of underplayed a lot and her last scene was my favorite because that's the part where she kind of gets into insane silent actress mode you know like mm -hmm. her her body and and the way she moves over to her husband before she like falls over dr dramatically and and it, it, it the, like that was kind of what I wanted more of from her is just just more to match everybody else. I have to say though the the person that stole it for me, um, unlike her performance in Gone with the Wind, which is really um, quite embarrassing, was Butterfly McQueen. I thought she was fantastic in this. I thought she was absolutely wonderful because 
yes, it's, it, you know, it's sort of a degrading stereotype, but there was something really whimsical about this particular maid in this. I actually felt as if she, she stole um, scenes for me. I actually quite liked her. Well, well I completely her. agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing yeah. about Butter, my, Butterfly McQueen in this is she's so relatable because, I mean, she blames that, you know, this is the part where, you know, it's like a, horrible racial stereotype but she blames it on herself being like dim-witted and I'm like no nobody would understand what's going on in this house it's not you <laughs> it's not you because she seems like hopelessly lost all the time um but yeah. you know the family is so off their rockers that of course she is you know yeah, and I, I love really that. loved the actor who played the sin killer he was quite fantastic Walter Houston He's yes yeah there's so much kind of good work on, on the margins of this movie, but I, I totally agree about, about um, Butterfly McQueen, who is playing, she's crafted a real character there with very little to work from, but you know, there's, there's a personality, there's a point of view, there's, um, I, I, I enjoyed her every time she was on screen, was glad to see her back. You know, that, that, if she had got a nomination, I would not have complained. Any other thoughts on Duel and Sun? I mean, they're so... Just, just one podcast thing. on just new duel in the sun. Because <laughs> I just want to know if it's just me, but am I the only person who saw it, sees the insane queer coding of Joseph Cotton's character and the way he sort of seems to be seducing Jennifer Jones but isn't, and then at one point he sort of says, if everyone were like me, the world would be an extremely frustrated place. I just kept seeing these weird little signals and cues, and I couldn't figure out why. Maybe I've just been too long in lockdown and forget how people behave. But. Well, I think I think his scarves are um, possibly playing into that reading because he could wear a scarf in that movie and yeah. throw it around. Um, but the co- the costume is actually interesting too because it, it the costuming plays into every stereotype you can imagine about good versus evil <laughs> you know like he's that you know he's like in the white uniforms and his brothers in the black but it does it in a way that's kind of like self-aware um mm-hmm. i found i really liked the costuming in this movie i, I guess i just really liked the movie even though it's very offensive and rapey as stories <laughs> the movie is like it's like sort of like rubbernecking you're just like you shouldn't look at this accident but you're going to keep looking at it and also the score there were moments where I'm just like, is this from Pinocchio? Like, the score was <laughs> odd to me, but I kind of, like, I dug it. And yeah. I thought Jennifer Jones was wild. It's interesting, because I've never seen her, I've never seen her perform in anything, and I know she won an Oscar for Song of Bernadette. So I, after I saw this film, because I'm just like, this, and also, too, at the time, I was, I was researching, it was very inappropriate. I mean, this was a very sexual, sexual film. People found very, very offensive. So I had to look at the trailer for Song of Bernadette to see, like, what was Jennifer Jones sort of really like? And I can't help but be a little impressed to be like, oh, you really went, you went for it. And there were moments where she sort of resembled Dorothy Dandridge to me, just in look. And I was just like, wow, Dorothy probably would have been better. Um, but Jennifer Jones was just wild in this, just wild. Yeah, and it's 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 a much, much um, more stylized performance than than she would generally give and other things she's a lot more uh a lot more like grounded <laughs> even in song of bernadette which technically could have been a a, a more uh, florid performance if you will i i was just gonna say i was uh digging through my copy of inside oscar and they were saying that um 
uh, there was a magazine of the archdiocese at the time, and they were mad at Duel in the Sun because they say it tends to throw audience sympathy on the side of sin. And if that's not a reason to love Duel in the Sun, then I don't know what <laughs> I, I Exactly, yeah. Yeah, because the sin killer. <laughs> yeah, Walter Houston. Is, yeah, that's not exactly a flattering portrait of uh, religiosity either. No, they apparently had to add that narration over the overture after the fact to that it explains that the sin killer is, you know, a representation of one kind of an <laughs> unethical preacher, but that religion isn't all like this. <laughs> that's funny. Okay, so now we're going to, we've been, you know, we haven't uh, really outlined this point, but we have been moving in chronological order. So now we're finally in the 20th century with Spiral Staircase. It's set in the 1916. Um, And Mm -hmm. it's a thriller. And those are always fun, I think, to see from other eras because like the, the, the sort of tropes of filmmaking even within genres change so much from so I, I thought I've, I'd seen it before. It's the only one that I'd seen before. And I really like this movie. Did, did anybody like it besides me? I did. Okay. <laughs> I think it's impressive that Robert, I'm going to murder his name, but Siodmak, uh did this and The Killers in the same year. They're, you know, I, I thought that's really impressive. They're both stylish and very stylistically different to my eye. Mm-hmm. I had no clue that this was the, like the early predecessor of slasher films. So to think about this film being released at that time, this must have been incredibly either um, intimidating to audiences and, and also incredibly inventive. I mean, it, it felt very modern to me. I thought the cinematography was really sort of interesting. Um, the story itself was really odd, how he attacked these women who were um, handicapped or crippled. It, it, it was a really interesting movie and the shortest one of all, thank God. Yeah. I was just like, oh, because also too, when I think about, stories progressing and how they've progressed in film um because a lot of these films are like three hours long this one was contained this is this is how long a movie needs to be yeah i was just gonna say i saved it for last because i thought it would be you know the the kind of fun little kind of trashy treat at the end of all those sort of lumbering prestige movies and and it definitely was it, it delivered on that score i mean i this was the first time i would seen it i've always loved the killers which i think is um, as as Peter was saying, it's it's noir in in a very kind of different register to to this one, and it's so sort of sleek and sexy and um, and and nasty in a way. While this one is so much more, there's kind of you know there's a hint of kind of Agatha Christie in in, in the middle of all that sort of expressionistic shadow. Um, and I had a really good time with it. I'm not sure if it's something that will stick with me for as long as as say the Killers, but it's 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 so nice. I always enjoy seeing when when the academy kind of paid attention to just neat little genre films because that would happen occasionally then and it happens so little now yeah i mean it still happens every once in a while now and it's still a treat in the same way i think i wish they would do it more often and realize that you know genre films sometimes last longer than prestige films in sort of public imagination i mean not always of course because styles of filmmaking change and like I don't think anybody would find Spiral Circus scary now no. uh, but it seems like something that you know could easily be remade within that genre as well um what do I we... also found it even curious and exciting that the movie 
really de-emphasizes the men almost entirely. Like the that the, that the movie did not end with the reunion of Dorothy McGuire and her male love interest in the movie blew me away. That they said, you know, that's coming, and we can just skip it. I, I actually was totally shocked by that because. At the end of the day, Ethel Barrymore plays a fairly typical role we might see in this category. She exists only to serve Dorothy McGuire's storyline, it seems. But it, how cool that she was doing that for a woman rather than for a male character. Yeah. Um, and that really the movie is about them. And they're the ones who save each other. I thought that was cool. Yeah. And um, I did I did like that she keyed in on sort of like the most interesting thing about this character for me is that her her weird uh, thing about hunting and that she's like a great shot. And so, and she seems to equate like violence with like strength and she thinks her sons are weak, <laughs> but then it's such a weird contradiction in the screenplay. And I think she understood that um, in terms of her character. Um, but I, yeah, I, I think the movie's interesting. I think it could have been more interesting. There are, I do have some qualms with it. Like I, Usually in older movies, I like that they have a more of a grasp of sort of um, spaces geographically because they're not so obsessed with like close-ups as as newer newer films. Um, but I also like the title. The title should have been more of like a character in the movie, that spiral staircase. And I really kind of didn't understand where it was in the house, which surprised me because it plays such a crucial role. And usually in movies from that era, I totally understand where, where everybody is in, in the house, but I didn't really quite get that in this movie. I got really uh, fascinated watching it. I, I got really hooked on comparing Lillian Gish and Ethel Barrymore just because they both were sort of the grand dames in the category. And they, I was looking up Ella Barrymore and was really shocked to see that she made one movie in the 20s. 20- and one movie in the 30s and that the 40s was really when her movie career took off that she was a stage actor ultimately and then in the 40s she had this great run of you know four oscar nominations in a row kind of a thing um but you really like i was like we were talking about lillian gish in terms of like the way she's clearly a silent movie actress like ethel barrymore has a great facility with language and she like she she's so much bigger than the frame even allows her to be and i find that you know also quite thrilling so these were the two performances that i gravitated to as an audience member for sure yeah it's also the one of the five films where nobody is playing another race so you know credits to the spiral staircase for that (laughs) (laughs) and i i loved you know as your to your point peter because i've never seen ethel barrymore in anything and i know that the barrymore family is iconic and drew barrymore whatever what have you it was her eyes that were so expressive to me I found they just communicated so much and the humor with her, you know, she seems like a broad and she just, I, I, I thought she expressed that so, so well, just so much wit. Cause she was, she was sort of fucking with Helen. She was fucking with her yeah. at times. And I'm just like, why are you messing with her? You trying to help her? You're this Oracle of doom telling her to like, get out. Then you fucking with her. I thought she was actually fantastic. It's another example of an actor um, and how great they are in the performance, doing so much with little. That's what that's what's so impressive about Ethel in this, I think. And I and I have to say, and I wrote this in my little blurb. The ending is great. It's sort of memeable for me when she's just she just shoots him, murderer, and it's just <laughs> great. It's fucking hilarious. It's my favorite point in the movie. Did I give it away? I'm sorry. 
That's okay. Watched this one with my boyfriend, and we kept we burst into laughter after that. And it wasn't even laughing at her. I felt like I was laughing with her. It was like the, yeah. it felt like a very good kind of camp to me. I was fully on board. Yeah. Hilarious. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, feel bad first... for Lillian Gish because if only she had got to, you know, get out of bed and shoot one of her sons, you know, things turned out better for everyone. Yeah, but I, I think at first I, you know, I, I, I didn't get it. Or as I was watching it the first time, I didn't quite get um, Barrymore's performance. Or maybe because I'm a little jaded, I was like, okay, you're in bed again. Because I think she she, she was in bed for uh, none but for for the film she won the Oscar for none none but the lonely heart, right? Yeah, pinky, um, pinky. Oh, and, oh, like and, it's never. Yeah, it's never not funny that she's in bed for half of but, her Oscar performance. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say she's sick again because she's sick and Pinky. Uh, um, so, you know, I, I, I was kind of like, okay, so you're just kind of falling in and out of consciousness and telling Dorothy McGuire to get out of the house, but she doesn't get out of the house. And so she wakes up and then she tells her to get out of the house again and then <laughs> passes out again. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, well, what's the point? And, um, you know, the, once the movie's over and I'm going through her scenes again, more retrospectively, I, you know, it's, it's interesting to see that she's giving us all the hints we need as we inch toward figuring out who the killer is. And I just love her, her, the, the, the last part of her performance, just the way she says murder and like the intensity in her eyes. It's just like, uh, just, I, she, she does, she gives so much with so little, um, whereas I think on the flip side of that, it's like Anne Baxter, for instance, is given so much to work with, but we can, we can talk about that in a bit, but, uh, you know, and uh, some of these other actresses are given very little and, um, maybe they, they, they don't do enough Whereas yeah. I feel like. Yeah. I always say if it's under, if it's underwritten, write some stuff for yourself, right? Like <laughs> in, invent more about the character. Um, so our final film is The Razor's Edge um, and set in the 1920s, I believe. Um, it's a little vague because a lot, a lot of years pass. And have you, did you guys notice from scene to scene, it's like there's no context clues and it'll be like seven years later <laughs> or suddenly someone will have three children. Um, and the movie just like hops around a lot. Um, I, yeah, I could... back and forth on this movie. I could not decide whether it was good or not. And I couldn't even decide about Ann Baxter, who is like a different character every time you meet her. That's how I felt completely. I mean, I truly, I was like, I can't track this character's journey. And they're giving me a lot of information about this character's arc, but she felt, it wasn't a credible journey to me as a viewer. I felt like it was like a grabby Oscar wanting performance. And I just, I was very cold to it throughout. I also have read the book and loved the book. And I don't know that the movie is a terrific adaptation in my opinion of the book. Was that was that character um, Sophie? Was that journey easy to track in the book? Oh yeah, I mean the book is like so emotionally acute, and the, like the major difference ultimately is that it's told from Mom's point of view. So he's just not a character in the story. Like it's really about a one person observing a world, mm -hmm. which you, you guess you can't really do on screen, I suppose. And that the loss of that as a central theme, I think, it really damages the property personally. What I do find really interesting about the way they've kind of written and constructed Anne Baxter's character in the film is that it's this film, as Nathaniel says, it, it takes place over this very long kind of period. I think it starts like just after World War II, so around about kind of the, the late teens, and then it kind of takes you through the Depression, and I think it maybe spans about 10 years in all. And 
the the thing is it's you know in a reversal of of you know usual kind of storytelling and, and screenwriting logic she's the supporting character who kind of consistently changes kind of throughout every time you see her and just about every other character in the film is completely fixed and never changes at all including um you know tyron baxter's uh, uh tyron powers protagonist who is just you know we we understand that he's undergone a change before the movie begins like because he has kind of ptsd and it's made him it's kind of changed his outlook on the world and 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 kind of made him more philosophical and 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 this kind of what we're supposed to believe as this paragon of goodness um but he is you know in 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 the frame of time that the film covers he's a he's a completely fixed post uh and so she's the kind of agent of change against which we're supposed to kind of track and compare all the kind of vices and virtues of of the other characters and that's a it's it's a weird way to write a character and it's i think it's quite a difficult thing to play um and i actually think i really do like her performance and i think she's actually best when she's called upon to be least dramatic i mean the you know she she obviously kind of won the oscar for her big kind of hospital bed scene where she kind of goes hysterical or, or the you know the big kind of drunk scenes in paris but she's she's most moving and i think most interesting when she has to kind of hold it all inside i mean that i think the scene in in the ritz where you know she's on the wagon and trying kind of desperately not to not to let her kind of you know her her agony show um and i think she's actually doing very well with that I, I was getting a lot from her from her face and her body language and there are lots of little details like that in the performance but um so i understand why she won and i'm not mad at that win but it is you know it, it, it's hard for her to to find a, a consistent human thread in in the way it's been written well even uh, any change from the characters like you said they're all fixed and even tyrone uh, power who should we should see this miraculous change but but like one of the filmmaking things that really surprised me I thought was kind of funny unintentionally was like when he goes to India to sort of become enlightened in in the scene this guru this guru character um, says, says you're going to uh, you know be isolated and I'll come for you after a certain length of time but you're going to be all alone and you can who knows where the spiritual journey will take you and like cut to like literally the next edit he's going to pick him up from from the hut where he or from the mountain hut where he's been and we have no idea how much time has passed or we have no sense that any time has passed because it's literally the very next scene and for a movie that's has really a lot of characters there there would have been an easy way to make that seem like he was actually gone for a while yeah that really threw me um and it's not as if it's a short movie there you know they have plenty of room to mark time in it yeah so yeah i, uh, I had a hard time connecting with the movie other than um uncle clifton webb uncle elliot yeah clifton webb clifton <clears throat> webb yes he was really i funny. thought herbert marshall was terrific too it felt like he was doing the most subtle work in the movie and i i mm. did appreciate that i have to say um i found the film exquisite more than any other film of the five nominees, I was most enamored with this storytelling. Um, it, even in the beginning, I found, um, I found it sort of reminded me of The Great Gatsby. We're going into this really sort of interesting story. Now, 
to so and also too comparatively because this is this was sort of um this film is set post World War One. Yeah. And then looking at the best years of our lives, that's also about post war, but it's World War Two. To me, The Razor's Edge was a was a much more um to me sort of authentic, interesting um perspective on a soldier's experience. It was an introspective perspective that was much more enlightening to me, specifically because we're concentrating on this one character played by Tyrone Powers. But in terms of Ann Baxter's performance, to me, she, she to me, is extremely more um, impressive than any nominee in, in the field, in my opinion. I was just like, this one knocks it out of the park. None of the other four even had a chance, mainly because you know, you, you sort of spoke about how she's different in every scene. She goes through an incredible tragedy. Yeah. She loses her husband and her child. At that point, she's fucking changed. She has changed throughout and she doesn't let go. She doesn't let go of that pain. She is going deeper and deeper and deeper into depression to the point that she kills herself. She's on a road to kill herself. It's almost as if... um by the end of the film, you're just like, why, why can't you sort of like snap out of it? It's almost like she had electric shock therapy. Mm. She's, she's, she's done now. Life does, life does not excite her. Um, I found her to be exquisite. And actually, my favorite sequence was when, you know, they go to that bar in France and she happens to be there. and She's a, she's a prostitute and she doesn't give a damn at this point. She's so lost. Mm -hmm. She's so in it. It, in in her sort of desperation, I remember that because um there was a, there was a time in my life where I I you know I was an alcoholic and and I ended up on the street for a few days and after a few days you sort of your your mental your mentality goes somewhere else you know and then I was I was at a, I was by a Seven Eleven and I just started to pick out of the trash can and I just sort of didn't give a fuck anymore. There's something that resonated so much with me from Ann Baxter. I thought she was exquisite. I thought it was it was so impressive what she did. And the film itself, to me, was so, so impressive, even though the time lapses were an issue. Um, I thought it was pretty amazing. And also um, the actor who played Uncle Uncle um, Elliot, what, what's his name? Clifton Webb. To me, it was so interesting because I'm just like, wait a second. He's obviously gay. You know, there's a line that he says at the end, you know, most people don't don't miss me. Um, they notice me. And it's so interesting because I'm just like, was this like one of the first sort of closeted gay characters? But it's interesting to me because when, when I think about gay characters now, we don't want gay characters to be declared gay. They just are. And that's who he was. So if anything, it's actually no, he was probably one of the first just gay characters. We don't talk about his sexuality. He's incredibly important in this film. He's so funny. He has amazing time. If anything, he should have won Best Supporting Actor. Um, he should have by far. I thought he was fantastic. I thought everyone was really, really fucking good. Well, I, I really, I liked Ann Baxter's scene by scene a lot. Mm -hmm. um, I just, I, and I realized the abrupt change in her character is sort of the point of the character, but I guess I just, I don't know. I just need a little bit more or, or some sort of tissue scene that sort of got me from point A to point Z. Um, yeah, I just didn't understand like why the her arc also involved like moving from 
like a physicality that was like Meryl Streep and She Devil to a physicality that was like Jack Nicholson and about Schmidt. Like it, it felt like <laughs> such a drastic physical shift, a, which certainly was abetted by the costume and getting really boxy on her and making her clothes yeah. look like severe and ill-fitting and stuff. But it, it just her physicality shifted so much that I the, a trigger went off for me, like a little light went off, and I thought, like, I don't like this woman. Not not Sophie. I like literally was like, I don't think I like Ann Baxter as a person. And that's not necessarily fair. <laughs> That's where I went. That's funny. So we always end the SmackDown by doing uh, like fantasy recasting just to see how roles would change or what we would find interesting about it. So just pick one of these ladies to put in one of the roles in one of the other movies. So Peter. Let's start with the guy. Oh my God. Um, I mean, I guess the most logical thing would be to flip the old ladies and see what that feels like. It also sideskirts the race issue for a moment. Um, and I think the reality is they probably could have done each other's roles, but I'm glad that, but I, I mean, I think I would probably buy Ethel Barrymore less as somebody who put up with the shit that Lillian Gish puts up with. Yeah, I, I was just going to say that I, I would like to see <laughs> Ethel in Lillian's role because then it'd be even crazier since the Barrymore <laughs> would be husband and wife. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah i love it hey and it would fit with the incestuous themes because it starts with us learning that these cousins are in love with each other does this game does it mean um does it have to be one of it have to be one of the characters that we just no, discussed it, or? no within the uh, you can do somebody else in one of the movies yeah oh then i would put ann baxter and irene dunn's role i i would have been interested to see what she would have done there um yeah because I, I, I really like Ann Baxter. I first saw her in um, Samson and Delilah. She had a huge, or no, The Ten Commandments, I'm sorry. She had a huge effect on me then. So Ann Baxter in, um, yeah, in that role. Oh, I kind of like that. Yeah, my choice is also to recast Ann Baxter. Um, and I would like to see her in Dorothy McGuire's role in The Spiral Staircase. Because uh, actually Dorothy McGuire is kind of the weak point in that movie for me. Hmm. I think she's sort of, overacting the muteness and and not giving me a whole lot else uh and i think ann baxter actually would have been really good in that and and really subtle i think she would have been perfect for it and i just do a shout out that like every time i looked at the list of the five women in this category i was like where is anna Magnani for rome open yep. city a genuine outrage well, yeah, I, they, I, they just didn't do foreign language performances back then. No, I mean, they nominated it for screenplay. So it obviously yeah. was like in the mix to a certain extent, but it's just, she feels like a glaring omission, even though I understand the context. It just is yeah. such a disappointment. Well, and and I, women of the best years of our lives. Sorry, sorry, Tori. No, no, no. I, I agree with you. I was thinking about that. It's a Wonderful Life. Donna Reed should have been there. I don't think any yes. of the four nominees outside of Ann Baxter should have been nominated for a damn Oscar. None of those performances were Oscar worthy at all, in my opinion, besides <laughs> Ann. That was the only one. So this was a weird fucking year, especially with The Wonderful Life. I mean, back then it wasn't popular for some reason, but I'm like, Donna Reed, Teresa Wright. Mm -hmm. And I also think Virginia M M Mayo, who yeah, played um, French Wife. She she was wonderful because she they made her out to be snobby. But I'm like, no, back then at the war, women finally had autonomy and her husband had to come back. She had to give up her job. She was pissed. I loved her performance in that because I really didn't really like the years, the best years of our lives all that much. But those two, I was like, they should have been nominated, especially Teresa Wright. She was wonderful, luminous, effortless. Anyway, I loved Myrna Loy in the best years of our lives. So I would have gone with her easily. I think. Um... 
Florence Bates and Saratoga Trunk, um, Donna Reed, of course. Um, there, there, there are, were a lot of people this year. If you wanted something that's simplistic, that's still a lot of fun, like I think, uh, like some of these performances were, I think Angela Lansbury and the Harvey Girls is really fun. Yeah. Ruth Nelson and Humoresque is also really great. Yeah. So it's a, it's a very strange selection by the Academy, and it doesn't even really line up with what they nominated in other categories, which tends to be the, the way they air. Like sometimes when they nominate bad performances, it's just because they love the movie. But in this, this year, they loved movies that had good supporting actresses yeah. and then they didn't choose them. They, they weren't coattail nominees. And I mean, right. yeah, the, the way they allocate some of the nominations that, I mean, I looked up like Duel of the Sun's Oscar record and the fact that they only nominated, you know, two performances from it and none of its technical properties is, is absolutely wild to me. I mean, I, I don't know how that shook out. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes films of that era, it just hits the zeitgeist differently. You know, I was looking back at 1968 because I recently saw In the Heat of the Night. That is not on par with Bonnie and Clyde. That's not on par with The Graduate. But, at first, but you know, it was a very racial, you know, you know, attention time at that time. And I think about this this particular year, too, because it was right after the goddamn war. Best years of our, uh, you know, of our lives, like, hit it on the head even though It's a Wonderful Life or these other films were much more extraordinary. So it really deals with the zeitgeist of where American minds were at the time. Mm-hmm. And they weren't quite in, in uh, Duel in the Sun. Even. <laughs> <laughs> but what, but maybe that's a good, a good thing. <laughs> yeah. For as fun as the movie is, maybe it would be, it's good that America wasn't quite there. <laughs> um. So thank you so much, all of you, for uh, doing the SmackDown. It was a very odd year, and I would wager it's might maybe the worst year for supporting actress of all ninety three years, which is saying a lot in terms of what was nominated. Not not the movies themselves. The movies themselves, I thought, on the whole, other than Saratoga Trunk, were watchable. <laughs> I guess I just like a revenge fantasy more than you guys. <laughs> Um, Tori Devin Smith, thank you, thank you so much. I wanted to have you on forever, so I'm glad you're finally here. I'm so I'm so honored that you asked me. I've been following your blog for years. You know, it's such an education for me. So I'm so it's such a contribution. So thank you. Um, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, or whatever. You can come to my house. I mean, don't. <laughs> <laughs> um, and those are all under your name, full name, right, Tori? De- at yes, Tori Devin. yes. You have the links. Yeah. And. Uh, Alan Nguyen? Uh, yeah, you can you can find me at the statuesque.net where I will occasionally write about movies here and there when I am not um, a slave to my public relations job. Okay, and uh, Peter Duchon, thank you for coming back. Thank you for having me. Um, you can find me on Twitter. As I said before, I work in theater, so you can't find me anywhere else right now. Um, and hopefully soon you'll be able to. But didn't you have something premiered during the pandemic? I did. You're right. You're right. I, I was very fortunate in that I did have the world premiere of a musical I wrote in Tokyo during all of this, which ended up becoming quite complicated due to COVID infiltrating the rehearsal room and many other factors, which I chronicled the New York Times. You can look it up in the arts and leisure section from a couple in February. Great. Well, but other than that, it's been a very slow yeah, <laughs> we will link to that as well. And uh, Guy Lodge, uh, a frequent uh, guest. We always love you. Oh, thank you. I hope I redeemed myself for the last time because the last time I was on the SmackDown, I gave two hearts to Kate Winslet in 
Sense and Sensibility, and a lot of your readers were pissed about that. Um, so <laughs> hopefully less dissent this time, but um, in case any Flora Robson stands want to send me hate mail or anything, uh, I'm on Twitter at Guy Lodge. All right. Thank you so much, everyone.